Acknowledgement of Country I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, work and study, the Iwabakal and Waramai people. I would like to extend that to the land on which our listeners meet on. I pay my most heartfelt respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Listener discretion is advised. The topics we discuss in this podcast may be disturbing to some. If you feel confronted by anything discussed in today's episode, please contact Lifeline or the university's free counselling service. We are recording. Welcome back to the Yoan Krim podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Krebit, and in today's podcast, we're exploring underworld crime, and I'm joined by Nancy Cushing. Nancy, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Isabella. Thank you so much for joining me today. That's a pleasure. So... Tell us a bit about yourself. What's, what are your qualifications and what's your role at UON? So I'm an associate professor in the discipline of history. Uh, until recently, I was the assistant dean research training for the Faculty of Education and Arts, which means that I was responsible for the postgrad students. Uh, but And I'm currently on uh, long service leave. But when I come back in semester two, I'll be teaching a history of crime course that we're going to be talking about. Uh, and uh, I do other undergraduate teaching, uh, and my research is actually uh, environmental history, which is a, a little bit different from the, the teaching of crime, but there are overlaps. So what got you interested in this area? So I had to think about that, and, and it took me back to uh, very early in my career in the 90s, and I was you know, at Woolies one day, and I looked at the, the few books that they had, for sale there, and they had a book called something like Giant Crimes That Shocked Australia, which is maybe where a lot of people start an interest in crime, and it's very short, little um, highly stylized accounts of various crimes in Australia, and they had, you know, murders and bushrangers and this and that, and then they had women's crimes just in one little section, and within that section was an account of a woman named Louisa Collins. And she was a person from the Hunter Valley um, who moved to Sydney with her husband uh, and then the husband died and she quickly repartnered with another bloke uh, and then he died as well. And they started to get a little suspicious <laughs> that maybe something was going on. So um, they, they checked some uh, drink that she had given to him and there was arsenic in, in the glass. Uh, and so there were then followed four trials for the murders of these two husbands. The jury couldn't agree until the fourth trial when they convicted her of the murder of one of her husbands and she was executed. And this was in 1889. Uh, and she was the last woman to be executed in New South Wales. So it was really that story and the way it was told in this popular book that made me think about uh, the highly gendered way that people think and talk and write about women's crime is something completely different from men's crime. Uh, and, and just all of the myriad of gender stereotypes that were deployed against this poor woman uh, in, in the writing of this popular tale. 
So I thought, hmm, I think a good historian needs to get in amongst this. And, uh, and it was great fun going back and researching her life and the crimes and the trials, and particularly going to the New South Wales State Archives to read all of the letters, and there were hundreds of them, that were written to the governor asking for clemency, asking that she not be executed once that sentence was passed. Uh, and, and just looking at the arguments that were being made. And so some were saying, uh, she's a woman, she's not really responsible for what she does, she can't be held to this highest um, punishment, uh, and others were saying she's a woman, her duty was to look after her husband, and she, um, she killed them both, therefore she deserves the most harsh of punishment. So it was really that whole story that drew me into the world of crime history. I published an article on it then, and it sort of went on the back burner. And then it wasn't until we were setting up the criminology degree that many of you, you and, and your colleagues are involved with that, um, that I thought, oh, I'd love to put on a history of Australian crime course. And that's what I did. And it's been very popular over the past few years that I've been teaching it. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think everyone can remember the very first case that got them interested in crime and criminology. And it's also crazy that you know, that case happened so long ago and we're still having this debate about women and how they're perceived in the justice system. Yes, there are some things that just don't go away and I, and I guess that just shows that although the place of women in society has changed dramatically since the 1880s, that, that's certainly um, not in dispute, uh, we still have a long way to go and, and it is still so much... Um, that women's crime is still looked at as a, a separate category and something quite different, and, and that women who commit crimes must, by definition, be even worse than men who commit crimes because women are, are God's police, are, are supposed to be moral and correct behaving persons. So there are some pretty, pretty notorious figures, female figures in the un world of underworld crime. So on that note, can you provide an overview of what underworld crime is and how it differs from other crime? Yeah, so, so I use the term Australian underworlds for the course that I put together. And I guess I was being a little bit playful in doing that, um, playing on the, um, what a, a lot of the popularity, the popularisation of crime in recent years around underworlds and the idea that there is this entirely separate social stratum which exists, which are people who make their living through crime and so don't have a day job, uh, associate mainly with people in this underworld and are responsible for a large proportion of the crimes that are committed in any jurisdiction. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure that that's really the case, uh, but I thought I can play with it. And, and the other thing was the, the idea of Australia as the land down under the idea that the convicts, who were the first sort of invading force into the indigenous country here, were um, sent because they had been convicted of breaking laws. Uh, and they were very much impugned at the time as being essentially an underworld or um, you know, this sort of subterranean layer of British society, that they weren't just ordinary people, but they were people who made their living from crime, uh, who associated mainly with other people who did so. And, and that's been something that 
um, Australian historians have contended with that proposition over the past 40 years, I would say, and have really blown it out of the water and said, no, these were ordinary people who were caught up with the legal structure in which they lived. Uh, and, and so there was no expectation that when they arrived here, they would recreate a kind of criminal class, which is the, the terminology that was often used, um, because they didn't come from a criminal class in the first place. So, you know, long answer to a, a simple question. I don't think there really is an Australian underworld. And, uh, and so that's what the course is really about, looking into that and hoping to, to guide students to the similar conclusion that, yes, there are pockets of crime and, and so on, but there's not a, a coexisting subterranean class of, of criminality. Okay, so what you're saying there, and of course what you try and suggest in the course is that there are criminals in Australia, but there's not like a secret underground world where they all live and feed off of crime. Yes, that's right. And, and so looking at the, the convicts, one of the most striking pieces of evidence about them is that so many of them committed crimes in their workplaces. So the, the people who were transported to Australia as convicts had offended against the laws in Great Britain. Uh, and in the early 1700s, those laws have been tightened um, to an extreme degree to protect private property. So this was a time where Britain was ostensibly a democracy, but people of the, the class of the convicts were not enfranchised. It was people who had a whole lot more money and wealth and position than they did. And so they were able to pass laws that served them, the, the people who were in parliament, and they wanted to protect their private property. They had a lot of it. Other people wanted it. They wanted to protect it. So they made, in the early 1700s, a vast array of crimes, capital crimes, so crimes for which people could be executed. But then that punishment of execution could also be um, commuted to transportation for a certain period of time. And, uh, and so that's how a lot of people ended up in Australia. I was just listening to the radio the other day, and the announcer was saying, oh, yes, you know, our, our convicts weren't so bad. You, you don't hear of many of them as being murderers and, and so on. And he had no idea why that was. And it wasn't that, obviously, that was happening in Britain, that those people were being executed. To, to be able to come, to be able to live, to serve a 14-year sentence in Australia was like a win because you had not been put to death already in Britain. So we did. The vast majority of people who came here were thieves, and many of them had committed, committed those thefts in their workplace. So they'd stolen finished products or leftover um, bits and pieces from the manufacturing process, or the women who were in service had stolen a dress from their employer or petticoat or food or any number of things. The idea of just stealing a loaf of bread to feed their starving children, that's not quite right either. These people are a bit further along the track than that, but they... Um, you know, they were employed, so they weren't part of the criminal class. They were working in other jobs, and they committed these sort of um, crimes of opportunity um, often once, sometimes more than once, and they, they'd gotten away with it a few times, and then they were transported 
So um, yeah, so so right back to the start, we just don't have the making of a criminal past or an underworld. Yeah, that's really interesting that you point out that those who were committing kind of the more heinous crimes, they were being executed in Britain because I feel like quite a number of people wouldn't know that because obviously we don't learn that at school. So it's really interesting to learn that. The underworld crime is portrayed by television shows such as Underbelly, which I believe is one of the reasons why you started this course. Well, I mean, that's an interesting one too. I mean, I, I guess I knew a lot of people would be coming to the course, you know, having acquired a taste for crime through these television portrayals of it, but I've never watched them. I'm so, I say that very quietly. And I do keep thinking, oh, yeah, as, as preparation for the next opera, because I really should sit down and, and watch some of these shows. But I just think I would cringe <laughs> through it, and, and I wouldn't really be able to stand it, because I am a historian, and, and so it bothers me when things are portrayed, uh, dramatized, in yep. ways that are not true to the, uh, you know, what I know to have been the case. But I, I think that uh, those, those shows have... Um, well, have, have done a service if they start people along a track of thinking, well, this is something that happened in Australian history. I'd like to know a bit more about that. And I think what is really exciting now, and, and one of the things that I emphasize in the course as well, is all of the um, digital history sites that are available. And that if you are interested in someone like Tilly Devine, you can get on your computer and you can find out a lot about Tilly Devine from primary sources. So going back to places like the Justice and Police Museum, uh, the places like the archives, looking on Trove and looking at um, the police journals, um, all of these things are, are great ways to test what you've seen dramatized. If you think, oh, I'm not sure if that sounds quite right, you can very easily look things up in newspapers from the period. There's so much that you can do to, to try and find out more about these people. Yeah, we're really at an advantage with TV shows kind of stimulating the interest and having access to so many fantastic resources. At the beginning of your course, you look into the Indigenous justice system at the time of the European invasion and its response to that. How does this relate to underworld crime? Yeah, so I guess what I wanted to do in looking at Indigenous systems of law was just to... To, to try to put to bed what was an assumption at the time when the um, when the, the first settlers were arriving in Australia, they assumed, terra nullius, probably heard that term, that, that this was a place that was claimed by no one and where there was no rule of law, there was no sense of private property, they didn't see fences, they didn't see the sort of signs and symbols they would expect to see of a... Uh, a system of order in the terms that they understood. And so I wanted to draw out that there were, of course, legal systems uh, and very intricate ones within First Nations societies. Uh, they, they differed, of course, across the country as languages did, as, as, as cultures did, um, but they, they share some principles. Uh, and, and I think the other thing that I, I try to do is to to get the students to think about what the legal traditions were in Europe. Um, and so we do look at Foucault's discipline and punish and, you know, some quite horrific scenes of torture 
uh, and so on that are at the beginning of that book and and just thinking about how was the indigenous system of law and the enforcement of those laws how did it parallel and how did it contrast with european systems and uh, you know certainly they, they are, as I say, very sophisticated systems of law uh, that were very, very successful as well. And and even, you know, one one thing that we might point out as a difference was the use of imprisonment, for example. So the punishments that were being meted out in traditional indigenous societies in Australia were much more physical. Uh, they, they could be things like ridicule and banishment and so on, but there were also physical punishments, we've probably all heard of the, the sort of ordeals, the stylized spearings and, and so on. Um, but that those were the similar sorts of punishments that were being used in Europe as well. And, and one of the reasons for transportation was because they didn't have a system of long-term punishment in prisons in Europe. They were much more about punishments of the body. Um, and, and so, yeah, I guess what I'm, I'm doing with that is, is not necessarily um, certainly not suggesting there was an indigenous underworld, um, but um, just trying to set up what, what was the existing legal system that was in place in 1788, and then how does this new imposition of a foreign system of laws operate and operate to the great disadvantage of those indigenous inhabitants of Australia, leading to a situation now where we still have the highest rate of incarceration of any people on earth where records are kept and, and comparable uh, amongst the um, Aboriginal people of Australia. So how did we get to that point? Um, and so that's certainly a strong theme through the course is looking at how were Indigenous people being treated by the law and, and how were they treated differentially? Um, and, and we can certainly see that from a very early phase, they're, they're being treated more harshly um, than other offenders. Nancy, this podcast is proudly sponsored by Espresso Warriors Katara. What's your go-to coffee order? I am a decaf cappuccino loving person. That's mine. Wow, I've never had decaf before. Yeah. Yep. And, and decaf, and I, I saw this was going to be one of the questions, and I thought I must get my little uh, diatribe in, that um, sometimes in really trendy cafes in Newcastle, you can't get decaffeinated coffee. And they'll say, oh, that's not real coffee. But you know what? You know, um, some people can't take the caffeine. So it is it's sort of a health thing. So a plea, a plea to those cafe owners, just have a little container of decaf. Yeah, be more accepting of those who don't want to feel anxious. Exactly. So youth gangs are also explored in the Underworld Crime course. Would you say that youth gangs are a stepping stone to entering a life of crime? Uh, look, I think youth gangs are another one of these areas that, that has, um, they've sort of become folk devils and there's just been far too much attention to them, but also historically a short memory for them because they've been around since the beginning of European colonization. And, uh, you know, we go back to the cabbage tree hat gang. And, and one thing that I think is interesting 
um, is that, and then they're succeeded by larrikin gangs and razor gangs and motorcycle gangs, and and then we have um, sort of ethnic gangs in the, the later 20th century and early 21st century. Um, that they're, you know, they're always people who feel like they're on the outer coming together to provide mutual support in a sense of identity and also sometimes a uh, economic um, uh, foundation for people that are otherwise outside of, of the economy or marginalized within the economy, but that it shifts from being native born. So those, those first ones, the cabbage tree hat gang and the, the larrikins tended to be people that were born in Australia. And then in the 20th century, there's this shift to the people that who are feeling on the outer tend to start to be immigrants. And, and there's a, a large proportion of Italians in the razor gangs. Um, and, and then right through, you, you're getting um, yeah, a shift between who is Australian, who is mainstream Australian. And in the 19th century, it's actually um, British immigrants who, who hold the power. And then there's a shift in the 20th century. So whether those young people who become involved with those gangs go on to be part of an underworld or, or organized crime, um, I think you'd have to look at individual cases. Um, I, I, I don't think that there is um, a, a big um, you know, a transference there. Some, some will and, and some won't. The theory of underworld crime is that it's very much a secretive industry if one were to exist. The dark figure of crime shadows significantly over domestic violence. Is domestic violence included in this underworld crime? Yeah, look, it's something that I haven't treated very much. And But as, as I live in this world where this issue is becoming more and more, I, I think it's something that I want to build into my studies in the future. And, and I guess we do think about, you know, we're talking about the, the razor gangs of the interwar period and people like Kate Lee and Tilly Devine being the, the representatives. Those are the people that people know they were powerful, they were smart, they um, were rich, they, um, they, they were the ones who were running things to some extent. And so you sort of feel, oh, is this a world in which women are really empowered? Um, but it, the whole phenomenon of those interwar gangs is produced by the legal, legal systems of the time. And so there were laws put in place that said that men could not live off the proceeds of prostitution, but women could. And so that gave these particular women a, a point of power where they could, benefit, they could organize and run prostitution rings um, and, and then get involved in other sorts of crimes also. But generally speaking, if we look at how women are involved in these in this underworld, it is as as the prostitutes, it is as the the girlfriends or wives of men and who are often on you know the receiving end of, of violent behavior. Um, and so it I think it, it gives uh, the wrong impression that there is such an emphasis on just a few extraordinary women. Uh, and and I, I haven't watched the Underworld series, but I've seen promotional materials for them, and they make them a lot kind of younger and sexier and, and so on than they really were. And the people listening to the podcast can't see it, but I've actually got a picture of Kate Lee behind me. And, you know, she, 
by the time she's at the height of her power, she's a middle-aged, dowdy lady, you know, lines on her face, um, and not at all the kind of um, sexy creature. Uh, they, they exercised different types of power. It wasn't sexual power that, that they were exercising at that time. And, and, you know, the whole way that those gangs ran in the interwar period is, is all in response to the laws that were in place at that time. So that um, they used, there were razor gangs because harsh laws had been passed against the use of firearms. They were involved in sly grog or illegal alcohol sales because the six o'clock close had been imposed on pubs that couldn't legally be in um, being served alcohol after six o'clock. Um, they banned narcotics that used to be readily available through chemist shops and so on. Uh, and so the drug trade emerged as well. So, yeah, it, it's the, the particulars of those gangs are all very much a response, a reaction to the laws that have been put in place at that particular period, including this prominence of, of just a handful of women, whereas, you know, the, the domestic violence kind of underpins all of it. Would you say that with the underworld in air brackets during the 1920s to 1930s with such prominent figures such as Kate Lee and Tilly Devine, with a, such a strong focus on them, would you say that it's merely just a portrayal that the women were so powerful or were they genuinely powerful? Well, when you read both of their biographies, you can see that they... Um they are victims as well as being people who can exercise some power um, and and they have their moments. But uh, I mean, you could say that about many of the men as well, that they, you know, that someone has a reputation as a hitman and he's doing deals and so on. And then he himself is injured or, or um, killed. So um, they, they all went through, these weren't easy lives. They, they all went through highs and lows. But yeah, I mean, they're they're often being abused by their partners and you know um, going through difficult times in their personal lives. So uh, yeah, I think it is um, the, the idea that they're sort of all powerful is not right. Um, but it, it's interesting, and they're in and out of jail as well, um, and they get picked up. They're, they're involved in violent fracas that they. Um, initiate and so on but in the end it's often taxes that get them in trouble <laughs> so it's like Al Capone in the United States that it they, the state sort of works out we're not going to be able to get them they're too clever to to get them on on the main things that they're doing but what we can nail them for is that they're not declaring income um, and so so that, that that's the way that they finally sort of lose their prestigious positions. Wow, isn't that interesting? I didn't know that. Yeah. That's that's also really interesting that we continue to see women who are kind of powerful in the world of crime, such as Nicola Gobbo. That's continuing today. Yes, it, it is interesting, but they are still very much, aren't they, the, the exception that sort of proves yeah. the rule. And, and most women who are involved in crime um, you know, if we look in the 19th century, a lot of it is, is very domestic, very local, small potatoes sort of crime. Um, you know, the, um, Alana Piper has done a lot of um, looking closely at, at the 
records of arrests and, and prosecutions in Victoria in particular. And women are most in trouble for things like vagrancy, for being suspected of being prostitutes, um, for being on the street when they're not supposed to be. You know, they're, they're non-violent. They're, they're, they're just these sort of very low-grade offences, but they can end up going in and out of jail, you know, numerous times. Like, I don't know. Uh, it varies, of course, but, um, you know, some people have 10 convictions, some people have 80 convictions from those sorts of crimes. So, so women commit crimes, but they're, they're often the very low-grade ones that, that are almost victimless crimes in many cases or, or very small-scale um, theft. And, and when there are cause celebre, it tends to be like Louisa Collins, where they have really crossed a line in terms of um, poisonings uh, and also things like um, the killing of infant children. And there are several women who were executed in the 1890s for having killed infant children, either their own or someone else's that was left in their care. And, and so the ones that become these kind of well-known cases and, and drew a lot of attention at the time as well tend to be where they have violated the expected norms of femininity. And, we still, and we're still seeing that today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then the other interesting thing, I think, is that women, uh, when you talk about women in crime, it's, it's almost more common to talk about women as victims mm. of crime rather than as perpetrators of crime. So they, they end up, um, in, in the 1930s, for example, there was a, a murder and it became known as the pajama girl murder. And so we know a lot about the victim as, as a victim not really as a person, but as a victim. She's the name of the case um, and, and less about the perpetrator who was her husband. Um, there's still controversy when it, around whether it really was or not. Um, but yeah, it's the pajama girl is the sort of phrase that stays in people's minds. I think uh, the reason why a lot of people are drawn to this course is because these figures in the underworld are almost celebrated and they're seen as celebrities. Why do you think they become almost like celebrities? Yeah, I mean, this is something I start the course with. You know, why are, why are you so interested in crime? Because I, I, I honestly don't share that. I don't, I don't read crime novels. I don't watch um, the shows. I don't listen to the podcasts. I, to me, the interesting thing about crime is as this fascinating window on the past as a way into what were people's values at the time? What did society think was okay and what was terrible? And if you thought something was terrible, what did you do about it? I mean, to me, that is just so interesting that it, um, by looking at the margins that we can find out about the deeply held social values of a society at a given time, and by looking at who's on the margins and how they experience crime as victims or perpetrators, uh, you know, that, that really is what I'm excited about. So, um, yeah, so why do people get so excited about these individuals? Um, and, you know, I've had lots of answers from students that they, they like to, to sort of try to work out the criminal mind and to have some insight. I think for some people it's, it's wanting to be self-protective so that you know, I'll, I'll be able to see this coming if there's something going on around me. Um, 
But I, I think there's also a tendency to to identify with the anti-authoritarianism of, of crimes, the um, sticking it to the man kind of view. And, and so one of the, the crimes that we look at is Ned Kelly. And I think he's such an interesting case because he is one of the few criminals people could probably name from the 19th century. Most Australians would be able to come up with his name if prompted. Um, but most people don't know that he killed three policemen in cold blood. <laughs> he was not a good man. And, and even at the time, he, he greatly divided people. He had his supporters. But most people thought he was scary and dangerous and, um, you know, a bit of a... Uh, a nightmarish creature um, but but I think in the years since he was executed in 1880 um, that we've sort of hung on to the anti-authoritarian you know the dashing around the bush on the fancy horse the hiding out in the ranges making the police look like fools all of that the cunning the, the stratagems the he was a show-off for sure um, and we can't remember that, but we let go the actual awfulness of the crimes that he committed. And, and, you know, he and his gang were careful. They chose their victims. They, they robbed banks. Uh, they destroyed mortgage documents so people wouldn't have to pay their mortgages. They, they were, you know, relatively polite to women uh, if they had to, had to steal a horse from a poor person, they would return it, you know, the next day. So they tried to keep ordinary people in the countryside on their side because they needed their support to remain on the run for so long. And, and all that helped, I think. Um, but yeah, I think it's also what happens after the person's um, criminal career, how the stories are retold, who tells them, who, who is listened to, that can make such a difference. And, and yeah, I think a lot of people with Ned Kelly tattoos or, or T-shirts or, or bumper stickers or whatever it is, don't really know that, you know, in that camp at Stringybark Creek, they killed three policemen and, and then robbed their bodies, you know, took their rings off their fingers and everything. I mean, it was not pretty. Yeah, I, I'll often say when I see someone with a Ned Kelly tattoo, you know, if they had another murderer tattooed on them no one would think that was acceptable but it's really interesting how we've kind of how Australia has turned the story of Ned Kelly and kind of avoided the fact that he did murder people yeah absolutely yeah and so I mean so he's he's kind of an extraordinary character but I, I think there's something in that in, in those yin and yang for, for other um criminal celebrities as well that we're at once repelled and attracted by them we admire and um, denigrate them and, and and maybe that just creates enough of attention that a person is really interesting and people just want to know more and more details about them and have them tattooed on their body yes yes indeed so nancy to finish off you've said that there isn't really an underworld of crime why is there not? Oh, there's a good question. Um, I don't think that Australia, as an orderly country where the rule of law does obtain, 
that it could really be sustained. I think we have effective enough policing um, and, and also people who endorse the laws of the land that we don't, we wouldn't allow such uh, an underworld to persist. I, I think they only can persist in lawless states where they provide an ultimate form of order for enough people that they can become self-sustaining. Um, but we, we've never had that kind of disorder. And, and so, you know, I talked about Ned Kelly. And so the area that he lived in, the northeast of Victoria in the 1870s, was a place where law and order were still just being established and uh, where they had a pretty ineffective police force. And so at that time, it's plausible, and there were you know, quite a few bushrangers around, not just the Kelly gang, um, and, and others who were not part of gangs, but who were still um, engaging in, in criminal activity. Um, and so maybe we had glimpses of it in places like that for periods of time, but um, you know, generally speaking, uh, yeah, I just think that we have had an orderly society here that, that would not tolerate that sort of um, ongoing, separate, crime-oriented stratum of society. That's such an interesting perspective, Nancy. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been fantastic to have you on. Thank you very much. It's been great talking about all of these issues with you. And what is the course code so that for, I'm sure you'll have a lot more people wanting to do the course. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, it's called HIST, H-I-S-T, 2006, Australian Underworlds. And uh, so we we offer it pretty much second semester each year. So it'll be running again this year from mid-July. Um, and it is a fully online course. So, and, and it's been um, produced for the Future Learn platform. I don't know if people have taken courses on that platform, but so it's not just a course I put together and then videoed myself in my bedroom, you know, presenting the lectures. It's up against a green screen, got cool background sometimes and music and, and all of that. So it, it's quite good. I, I think it's a well-designed course and, and I had a lot of help doing it. So and it, it's fun to do. And, and one of the assignments is really good. You get to transcribe historical criminal records. So the sort of thing that crim students probably wouldn't have access to in the contemporary records because of privacy, but we can go back into the past and you can transcribe somebody's handwritten uh, criminal records and, and then do some analysis. You've been listening to the Yoan Crim podcast, hosted by Isabella Krebert and run by the University of Newcastle's Criminology and Criminal Justice Society. In today's episode, we explored underworld crime. A special thank you to this week's guest, Nancy Cushing, to Corey Di Pasquale for composing the podcast theme music, and to Tamika Hillebrand for her ongoing support. I'm your host, Isabella Krebert, and I'll be back with another episode on August 9th. Until then, you can stay up to date with the CCJS by liking us on Facebook and Instagram. But if you can't get enough of criminology content, then check out the UON CCJS blog run by Molly Lancet. Links are on our social media pages.